Welcome to episode 273 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right. We're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast with code ifpodcast. And we'll put all this information in the show notes.
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited for you guys for our conversation today because this is a super special episode of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. We very rarely have guests on this show. So if we have a guest on this show, it's because you know that we really, really love the work and the thoughts and opinions and knowledge and science of the guests that we brought on. So I am so honored to be here today with Rick Johnson. So the backstory on this is I was first exposed to Rick's work a few years ago. I heard him on Peter Atia's podcast, and you guys know that we love Peter Atia. I was fascinated because I personally 
am very fascinated with the role of fructose in our diets. I mean, I know that's a very granular thing to be obsessed with, but (laughs) I was so excited that there was somebody else who was really looking at the science of fructose metabolism. And so I got his first book, The Fat Switch. And then fast forward, I really, really wanted to interview him. And then I heard him again, much more recently, again on Peter Tia's podcast, because he has a new book out called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, The Surprising Science Behind Why We Gain Weight and How We Can Prevent and Reverse It. I was like, I've, I've got to book him for the show, for the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. And then his people actually came to me, his publicist or PR people, asking to come on the show. So I was so, so excited. That episode actually as of our recording right now, is actually airing today on the Biohacking Podcast. But when this comes out, that will have been a few weeks ago. But I just so enjoyed that conversation. And then since then, Rick and I have been emailing and diving deeper into the science of everything. And I just knew I had to bring him on this show to share all of his incredible work with you guys. So I'm just, I'm really happy right now. Um, Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Really. <laughs> I was just telling you this offline, but for Cynthia Thurlow's other podcasts for listeners, she also recently aired an episode with Rick and said it was her most downloaded episode of the year. And she interviews a lot of heavy hitters. So that's pretty cool. So this content is definitely resonating with people. But so Rick, for people who are not familiar with you, there might be some people who have listened to your other episodes, but for those who are not, what is your story? So you're currently a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, but what led you to where you are today with your your fascination with fructose and this thing called the survival switch and obesity and just everything? You know, I went to medical school, trained to be a physician and started, did my specialty in kidney diseases as well as internal medicine. But from the very start, you know, I always was very interested in the why, not just how to manage a person, but why were they developing diabetes? Why were they developing kidney disease? And so I began my career (laughs) quite a few years ago where I was both a clinician as well as a researcher got a lot of uh, funding from the National Institute of Health to help me along the way. And over the last, you know, empty ump years, I've been doing research. It started off in kidney disease. And then I became interested in high blood pressure because high blood pressure is linked with the kidney. From there, I discovered that there was a substance in our blood called uric acid. And that substance was very strongly associated with uh, high blood pressure And we actually found evidence that it might actually play a role in high blood pressure. Uh, Big surprise. And and I just kept following my nose along the way to try to figure out what was, you know, this pathway. And then uh, pretty soon I became interested in, well, okay, if uric acid is so important, what's driving the uric acid up in our population? You know, because there's a lot of people with high uric acids. And, you know, the classic teaching was it was from eating purine-rich foods, you know, because high uric acid is associated with a disease called gout. And so uh, it's associated with, like, drinking beer and eating a lot of meats and stuff. But there's another food that dries up uric acid, and it's sugar. And table sugar or high-fructose corn syrup contains fructose. And fructose is a carbohydrate. It's It's the sugar in fruit. But if you eat it, it will generate uric acid. 
And particularly if you eat a lot of it, you can really raise the uric acid in your inside your body. And, and it turns out that that led me to kind of some big discoveries because the uric acid turned out to have a role in driving obesity and diabetes. And it led me to realize that fructose was really a culprit. And then from there, I studied, started studying fructose, and I found out that it wasn't just the fructose that we eat, but that our bodies can make fructose. And that this kind of opened the door for what might be causing the whole obesity epidemic. So it was a long, long story. It took me, I mean, I, I took me everywhere. So I did studies in hibernating animals, and I did studies in people, and I did studies in genetically modified mice, and I did studies in, in indi indigenous tribes living in, in the jungle. I even did studies where we resurrected extinct uh, genes. So I, I, I've been around, and really, it has been an adventure story, Melanie. I love it so much. And actually, to that point, your book, one of the things I really love about it is it, it reads like an adventure story, especially the very beginning where you're talking about, it's like a mystery of, you know, why did we become fat, like as a society? And you talk about really fascinating things that happen in animals. Like, could you tell listeners about the hummingbird, for example? Yeah. Oh, we, we think of the hummingbird as this magnificent bird that has the fastest metabolism of, of perhaps all birds. I mean, I think that it, you know, it flaps its wings like, what, 250 times a minute. And I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it has an incredible metabolism. And you would think, you know, that that bird must be the healthiest bird in the world. But it, it lives off nectar. And nectar is really sugar water. And that contains a lot of fructose. It contains fructose and glucose. And when that hummingbird drinks this nectar, it's getting a very large amount of sugar. And what happens is during the day, that, that sugar is so strong that the, the, the little bird becomes diabetic. Its blood sugars go up to like 500. And it gets perhaps the fattest liver of any, any bird. It turns like glistening white. And so by the end of the day, it's, it's fat and diabetic. And then during the night, it will, it will rest and it will burn off the fat and the, and the glucose. And in the morning, it will be back to its normal state. And so it's like intermittent fasting. Because <laughs> a little bird, he gets really fat and then he fasts through the night. Interestingly, if they burn off all the fat and the carbs, then he'll kind of go into torpor, which is sort of like a hibernation state where they drop their metabolism, drop their blood temperature and all that, you know, so their body temperature. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a very interesting bird. With those huge spikes in blood sugar, which that blew my mind when I first read that, is it getting the effects of like glycated hemoglobin? Like, does it have an HbA1c and things like that? Like, how does it long term? How is it handling those spikes? Well, one of the interesting things is there's first off, there's not a lot of studies of hummingbirds long term, but what has been done suggests that they actually do all right. So that their metal, you know, what happens is that they have such good mitochondria. And they have this very good protective system to help protect the mitochondria from getting permanently damaged. They pair to not get diabetic complications. So they, they, they've been able to, to survive diabetes without the complications. And, I, and again, you know, we can talk about 
you know, what drives diabetic complications and and all that kind of thing. But but it, it's 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 really interesting that these guys will raise their blood sugars to over 500. I mean, these are very high blood sugar levels, but they they seem to be relatively protected. Although I, I think more studies, you know, really need to be done. But the initial reports suggest that they're they're pretty protected, even though they're very diabetic. Does that insinuate, and this is completely theoretical and not real life at all, but if we could have a metabolism fast enough to burn off everything that we are eating, or if we could literally exercise until we exercised off all of our excess calories, that we could mitigate damage ourselves? I think that that we that that's true. So there there are people who have super mitochondria. There really are. They have there are people running around, there tend to be the super athletes. And studies done in these super athletes, these professional athletes, like the guys that win the Tour de France, they have such wonderful mitochondria that they they have what we call metabolic flexibility, where they can burn you know carbs and fat intermittently and going back and forth very freely without any problems. And one of the things they have is they have a very high antioxidant system in their mitochondria that helps protect the mitochondria from damage. I have a friend who coaches in the Tour de France, and he he points out that a lot of these super athletes appear to eat sugar without a problem. Now, my belief is that if they pounded themselves with sugar and fructose, that they would get into trouble over time. But it is interesting. And there's also, there's this naked mole rat. And this is a little guy who burrows into the sand in South Africa. And they live in these burrows where there's almost no oxygen, right? Even though they have a very low oxygen system. I mean, there's low oxygen there and it would normally kill most animals. They, they've developed a system where they can survive in that low oxygen state. And one way, they, one, one way they do that is they produce huge amounts of antioxidants uh, in their mitochondria that protect them from the effects of hypoxia. And it's interesting, there's a fructose story there too, but it's, I should probably bring that up later. But, but basically, if you can have super mitochondria, you can survive under a lot of stress and you can survive in the presence of sugar. I should say that these, these little naked mole rats make fructose to survive. And uh, but they don't suffer the consequences of the fructose because of this high-powered antioxidant system they develop. To clarify for listeners, because I think a lot of people hear antioxidants and they think exogenous antioxidants, so they think you know antioxidants from fruits and vegetables and things like that. But these are antioxidants that our bodies are creating endogenously, right? That's right. They're making it themselves. There's one called Nerf Two. And this, is, this antioxidant is strongly associated with living longer. So there's, I have a friend at the Karolinska who studies this antioxidant. And he can show that in many, many species, that if you can maintain a high nerve too, you can live longer. And it's, it's actually linked with sugar because if you eat sugar, you induce oxidative stress to the mitochondria. You know, you can accelerate aging in animals by giving them fructose. And so fructose does this by making the mitochondria put them under stress. So that hummingbird, 
is, is creating oxidative stress in his mitochondria. And, and that would normally be associated with developing obesity and all these complications that would persist, right? But by keeping the antioxidant system high, which the hummingbird has genetically, by, by having that very high antioxidant system, he can protect his mitochondria. And the super athlete has this incredible antioxidant system. And the naked mole rat, which lives 30 times this, longer than a normal rat. And so it lives like 30 years, whereas a normal rat lives two years. It's thought, it's thought to be because of this Nerf 2, this antioxidant system. But, you know, it's interestingly, you know, this nerve 2 system can be knocked down. And one way it can be knocked down is with fructose. And so, uh, you know, I keep thinking, well, you know, the hummingbird is eating all the sugar. He's got this high nerve 2. Can over time this be weathered down and knocked down? And, and that's why I'd like to see more studies done in the hummingbird and, and in, you know, the naked mole rat where they're where they have this nerve too, because, you know, we know that if you take human cells and you treat them with fructose, the nerve two is knocked down and you get this oxidative stress and you can accelerate aging. And so the, it's a really interesting thing, you know, so the antioxidants in the mitochondria are really important at protecting the mitochondria from the complications of obesity, diabetes, and aging. And fructose, you know, is, is usually something that makes things worse. And things like these antioxidants can protect against fructose. And so uh, some animals that are eating a lot of fructose or making a lot of fructose seem to do well because they have a high levels of this antioxidants. But like us, we normally we don't. But if you're superhuman, <laughs> you know. <laughs> jealous. Yeah, I'm jealous of those guys too. So I'm so glad you're using these words stress and you dropped in the word metabolic flexibility, which is something that our listeners love hearing about. And we talk about a lot in this show. So I think a foundational question here, because you're talking about activating the stressed out state and how that's a problem. What is that survival switch and how is it different from being in the survival state of fasting, which has a lot of benefits to it? So let's go, you know, so the, the very first major discovery we had was that there seemed to be this substance in our blood called uric acid. And this uric acid, you know, is generated from foods we eat, but we also can make it. And this uric acid, when it gets high, it can be associated with a disease called gout. And so you can get these, like, uric acid can crystallize in high concentration and these crystals uh, end up in the joints, particularly the big toe, and you get gout. Now, it was noted a long time ago that gout is associated with being overweight or obese, and it's also associated with being diabetic, and it's associated with all kinds of conditions that aren't, you know, particularly what we would like to be. So for a long time, it was thought that, oh, you know, people who are overweight or obese are at an increased risk for getting gout, and it's really the obesity that's, that's leading to the gout. But in fact, our work started to suggest that uric acid might actually have a role in driving obesity. And we found evidence that people with high uric acids were 
risk of de developing obesity and, and of developing diabetes. And so that led us to try to understand what could raise the uric acid, and it took us to fructose. And fructose, when you, when you give fructose to an animal, normally animals regulate their weight just beautifully. So during the, you know, they, if you overfeed it or it will gain weight, but then you stop overfeeding it, it will come back to normal weight. If you, you know, fast it, it will lose weight because you're taking away its calories. But then as soon as you let it eat again, it will go right back to the weight it wants to be. And most animals want to carry a little bit of fat, but not a lot of fat. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Doesn't it go back to the weight that correlates to the season? Yes. Yes, it does. So usually in the spring, animals and, and the summer, animals will really regulate their weight well. But as winter comes and, you know, and food becomes less available, animals will start to, to increase their weight in the fall in preparation, in preparation for, for winter. And, and the biggest case, of course, are animals that hibernate. You know, like there's some animals that they can't find enough food during the winter that they will actually hibernate and they will drop their metabolism. They'll go into a burrow or something and they'll just basically go to sleep and drop their heart rate and drop their temperatures and they won't eat, they won't drink, they won't pee, anything like that for maybe three to six months. The, the bear can hibernate for four to six months. And during that time, it's not eating or peeing or anything. It lives off its fat during that time. And the fat doesn't just provide energy, but when the fat's broken down, it produces water. So there's this really interesting thing. We don't think of fat as a source of water. Normally, most of us don't. But fat is, is a source of calories, and it's a source of water. And, you know, when you eat food, you're making calories you eat are turned into energy. And most of the time we think of energy as this thing, ATP is what we call it in science. And it's this, it's basically a chemical that, you know, activates processes and, and generates energy. And, and, and so this ATP is what we usually call our immediate energy. But there's also a stored energy, and that's fat. So when you're eating calories, they usually are either burned as active calories like ATP, or they're stored as fat. And then the fat is later burned to generate energy when you're not eating any food. So the, the fat becomes that source of energy when there's no food around. So these animals, all animals like to have a little fat. Because they want, you know, in case something happens and they don't get any food for a while, they can basically generate the energy they need from their fat. But they also generate water from their fat. So fat becomes a survival tool for animals in the wild. And it kind of led to my, you know, nature wants us to be fat. Because these animals would like, for example, if they're going to if, if you're a bird and you're going to migrate 10,000 kilometers, you, you, you want to have enough fat so that you can burn it and get the water and energy you need so you don't have to try to find food when you're halfway over the ocean, you know, because if you're a land bird, that's not a good thing to be, you know. So anyway, so what happens is these, these animals will, will gain weight dramatically in preparation. This is the cool they do it in preparation before they, they know there's no food around. 
So beginning in the fall, for example, the bear will start gaining eight to 10 pounds a day. Uh, and it does that by eating huge amounts of food. So uh, normally I told you, you know, animals regulate their weight. So they, they have a sensation of when they're full and so they won't keep eating. But they lose that sensation of fullness in the fall. And, and suddenly they will keep eating and they will eat huge amounts of food and they'll get fat and then they'll, they'll, they'll survive with that fat when they, when they hibernate. So uh, there's a little bit of evidence that people also tend to gain weight during the winter months, as you probably have read. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. So do we gain during the winter or do we gain leading up to the winter? 
Well, that's a good question. For the, you know, for the animals that hibernate, they will keep gaining until they actually hibernate. And then when they're hibernating, they're obviously not eating at all. We tend to keep eating into the winter <laughs> as well as during the t- actually we're pretty much eating too much all the time <laughs> if you look and, and so the problem is is we've uh, you know it's as if we have activated this switch to gain weight in kind of a 24 7 pattern so so you know and and so but this was one of the questions that i you know we were we had so What happened is we realized that these animals were gaining weight in the fall and they were and and they weren't just gaining weight. They were eating more. They were hungry. They were thirsty and they also became insulin resistant. And they, you know, I mean, they developed these features we call the metabolic syndrome. So they're like foraging for food and they're eating too much and they're getting fatty liver and the fats are going up in their blood as well as in their adipose tissue, and they're getting insulin resistant. And we go, oh, my God, this is what we call abnormal. This is what we call metabolic syndrome. You know, we consider this almost a disease among people, right? But if you're a bear, this is like normal. This is what you want. it's It's like a survival pathway because if they didn't do this, they might get into trouble when there's no food around. It's kind of late then to store fat. So we realized that this whole process was really a survival switch and that it was turned on and it was something that animals do to help them survive. And this was the first big discovery that, you know, really in our group was that there was this survival switch and, and the metabolic syndrome what we call, you know, when, when people come in and they go, yeah, my hemoglobin A1C is high, my blood sugar is a little high, I've got high triglycerides in my blood. This is like part of a syndrome. You are act, you have activated, you have activated a switch. That's what's going on. And so this was the first big thing. And then the question was, you know, why would insulin resistance be a survival switch? You know, why would that be part of a survival switch? It causes diabetes. Diabetes, you know, is associated with increased risk for death. Why would an animal want to be pre-diabetic? And the, and the interesting part is that the brain, you know, loves glucose. It's its favorite fuel, okay? Glucose is its favorite fuel. It will use ketones as well, but it loves glucose as its ideal fuel. Glucose is regulated by insulin, and insulin is the hormone that goes up in our blood, drives glucose into tissues. But it only there's there's certain tissues that are particularly insulin responsive, and the big one is muscle. So when you become insulin resistant, there's less glucose going into the muscle. So the glucose begins to collect in the blood, and the brain doesn't really require insulin at least for much of the brain. And so it's a way of shunting the glucose from the muscle to the brain. So the animals, if the animal could think about survival, if it really could could do that, it would want to have the glucose that it has be preferentially used for its thinking rather than for its muscle. Because if you can't think, you're not going to do well out in the wild. So insulin resistance is really a way to help an animal when it does not have enough food around to help preserve the glucose mainly for brain function. And uh, there's a, you know, scientist that I've worked with who've 
who've studied starvation and, and things like that. And when you starve, not only does your insulin levels go down, but you become relatively insulin resistant as well. So it's all meant to kind of help, you know, when there's no food around, you want that glucose primarily to go to the, to the brain. So the big paradigm shift here, or also a debate and a chicken and egg question is, it sounds like some people will say you become overweight or obese and that causes metabolic syndrome. But this sounds more like metabolic syndrome has a purpose to make us overweight and obese. Yeah, metabolic syndrome is really another name for a collection of signs and symptoms to help you survive a period of time when there's no food. So, so if you're, if you want to, to maximize, you know, how, how to help yourself during a time when there's no food, you want to have the metabolic syndrome because you want to be insulin resistant. You want to have high fats in your blood and your liver and everywhere so that you have enough fuel to survive when there's no food around. So what's happening when we practice intermittent fasting? Is that stimulating all of this because we're in a a quote, a starvation state during the fast? Okay, so so when you quit eating, you're actually not necessarily activating the switch right away, right? And because you have fat already, everybody has some fat. When you fast, you begin by burning the glycogen and fat that you have. And so an, a normal animal, if it starts fasting, will not activate the switch. And when the animal that's, that gets really fat, like the bear, and he gets really fat, and then there's winter comes and there's no food around, and that's usually the, the time when they can't find any more food, they'll hibernate and they switch into a fat, they switch into a burning phase. So first they burn the glycogen, which is the carb stores, and they, they disappear within a day or two. And then they will burn the fat. And, the, and, the, and it's a very healthy thing. They're not foraging. They're not hungry. They're sleeping. And they're just burning the fat. And they get rid of the fat. And then in the spring, you know, they, they may have just a tiny bit of fat left. And many times they, will, they won't have any fat left. And that may actually help stimulate them to wake up, actually. And so then they wake up and they're back to normal. Okay. So when you're intermittent fasting, you know, most people who are intermittent fasting have some fat stores and they have, I mean, everybody has some fat stores and some glycogen, right? So if you intermittent fast, you are burning the glycogen and you're burning the fat. And when you're burning the glycogen and fat, everything is fine. You're not in trouble. You're not in trouble. But as soon as the fat burns away, then you know what they have to burn? The protein. That's the only thing, yeah, the muscle. And one of the first things that's released is uric acid. And that is like an alarm signal. And it turns on the switch. And they start foraging. They're looking for food. And they're desperate. But now they're, they've, they've turned on the switch in a situation where they really are starving. Okay? So, like, they, they've done studies with penguins. And the emperor penguin is this magnificent bird. I mean, it is, it is the most, I, I want to go to Antarctica and see one of these guys. I mean, it's just the most, and, and apparently there was a penguin that was like six feet tall once. 
I was going to say, how tall are they? Yeah, they're tall. These are like four feet. I think three, three to four feet or so. Three, three feet maybe. But there, there was a penguin that was six feet. I, that, that's the penguin I. But it's extinct now, unfortunately. The the Colossus penguin. But anyway, the emperor penguin is this huge penguin, and it will get fat in the Antarctic before it nests. And the emperor is one of the few birds that nests during the winter. So it's nesting during the winter in the Antarctic, okay? And it has to store, so it does the same thing. It gets hugely fat. I mean, hugely fat. It almost doubles its weight. Its liver gets really fat. It get, you know, birds get particularly get fatty liver. And then, the, and then it waddles in inland. And then the male actually does the nesting because the, the male is a bigger bird. So it can carry more fat. And so it can survive longer than the female in the winter. And so when it's nesting, the male will, will sit on the egg because, you know, it knows that it may not, you know, that winter's a long time down there and that it can take a while. I mean, it, it wants to have enough fat. And so the male has more fat so it can last longer. But sometimes the male doesn't have enough fat. And if it runs out of its fat, while it's, while it's burning the fat, it completely feels good. It just sits there. It's not in distress. Same thing's true with people who are fasting. If you're just burning the carbs and the fat, it's generally not a stressful situation, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, survival. But once the muscle starts breaking down, the penguin will desert. It's, it will leave the egg. And it will try desperately to get back to the coast to get some food. And it will start making sounds, calling sounds, and foraging. And, you know, it's, it's like a stressful period. And if it doesn't get food, it will die. And so that, what's interesting is that, that what, what heralds the, that shift is a rise in uric acid. Because uric acid is released and it is generated when protein, when muscle is breaking down. So that was actually a clue to us that uric acid might be a survival factor. And so it was interesting that fructose raised uric acid. And then we started studying, you know, well, why does fructose raise the uric acid and what's the uric acid doing? And what we found is that when you give fructose to an animal, it creates a pseudo starvation state. So what happens is when you eat fructose, Inside the cell, the, the, the uh, fructose causes this drop in phosphate. And phosphate's like critical for energy production. Phosphate's part of ATP. So ATP, the P part is a phosphate. And the way the ATP works is it donates a phosphate to, to generate and drive chemical reactions. And that's how energy is, is, is activated, really. And so what happens is when you eat fructose, there's this acute fall in phosphate inside the cell. And when that happens, the ATP levels fall. The, the breakdown of ATP gets turned into uric acid. And then the uric acid keeps the energy levels in the cell low for a prolonged period of time. And it does so by causing oxidative stress to those energy factors that are making ATP. 
So it causes oxidative stress to these mitochondria, and that kind of suppresses the mitochondrial function. Now, again, if you're a super athlete, that's not going to happen. You, your mitochondria are strong enough to weather it. If you're a hummingbird, it's not going to happen. You're, you, you know, because at least acutely, you know, you can weather that, that storm. But for most of us, when they, that mitochondrial stress occurs, it suppresses the mitochondria, keeps the ATP levels low, and that activates an alarm system. Basically, the animal thinks to myself, to itself, you know what? My energy levels are low. I'm in trouble. And, you know, normally, if my energy levels are low, my fat's going to kick in and, and, and start being broken down to provide that missing energy. But what fructose does is it blocks the burning of the fat at the same time. So it's suppressing the ability to break down the fat. And so when the ATP levels fall, the only way to replenish it is to eat more. You can't use that fat because it's been the fructose is blocking your ability to burn the fat. And so what happens is you become hungry and you start eating more. And then the more food comes in. And, and again, you've got this shunt going on. So more of the calories are going to stored fat rather than to ATP. And so the ATP levels will continue to stay low for a while. And then eventually you'll correct it, but at the expense of eating a lot more food. So it's like this brilliant system. Basically, when you eat fructose, it make, your body thinks it's starving. And so it will continue to stimulate processes to store fat, to become insulin resistant. But you're actually not starving. It's pseudo-starvation because you, you have fat on board, you, you know, and it's only getting bigger. So more went from this. So it's a way to, to get the animal, instead of regulating its weight so perfectly, you know, I'm going to stay skinny. Now suddenly you're gaining weight. And, and, you know, when people are young, when you're 20 years old and you're out running on the beach and you have all the energy in the world, you can drink that soft drink and it's not going to really have a big effect. You're not going to see sudden weight change or anything like that because your mitochondria are pretty healthy and it takes, you know, repeated insults, repeated times. But in this world where 70% of processed food has sugar in it, where soft drinks are everywhere, where, you know, where they're putting, you know, all this kind of foods around and, and this high fructose corn syrups being added to everything. You know, we're, we're being, you know, hit hard. 15, 20% of our diet is from these added sugars. And so we're, we're chronically activating this switch. And some of us do it better than others or worse, depending on how you look at it. And so some people gain weight a little bit easier than others. Some are still doing pretty well. And you can battle it by exercise and you can battle it by willpower. But, you know, this is a biologic process. So it's hard to, to have the willpower chronically when there's a biologic process saying that you're hungry, this looks good. I, you know, and so, so this is sort of what, what's going on. So basically, when we're eating, you know, sugar and high fructose corn syrup and things like that, it's really ironic because we're taking in calories, we're taking in energy, but it's stopping our body from actually burning energy. So our body needs to eat more, which is ironic. That's exactly how it works. It's, it's like tricking the system. 
But it's, you know, and so it turns out when we started studying this, we realized that glucose is actually really there as an immediate fuel. It's really meant to make ATP. It's meant, it's not meant to really be a storage mechanism. It isn't. Fructose, though, is the carb that's really trying to aim at storing energy as opposed to immediately using energy. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, but I know that that eating bread and rice and potatoes and French fries, and they don't have fructose in them, but they, they, they're not, they're fatty. I mean, we know that from low-carb diets, how, how, powerful, how powerful bad carbs can be. And, and so, you know, this was a, a challenge. This was a challenge to me because, you know, when I was originally doing this work and we were giving fructose to animals and they developed metabolic syndrome, and then we, we could see that, you know, a lot of animals were eating fructose to create metabolic syndrome as a survival mechanism. I mean, it seemed like the answer was going to be easy. We just had to avoid foods with fructose. And I even wrote a book, you know, the, the Sugar Fix. It was back in 2008. It was one of the first books to, you know, pro, to say, you know, the problem is fructose. It's not anything else. And I had, I had a lot of people. Write me, email me, tell me, oh, my God, when I quit eating sugar, I lost 25 pounds. I feel great. Thank you so much. Or, you know, and, of course, you can't completely stop eating sugar. And I don't recommend that either. But, you know, if it's a birthday or something, you know, I'll eat sugar. But anyway, but you, you, the idea was to really limit sugar. And then I had these people contacting me and saying, you know, I'm sure sugar is important, but I have to cut out all carbs. I really have to cut out starch and especially high glycemic carbs, carbs that release glucose into the blood, like uh, potatoes, and rice, and cereal, and chips. And I sort of knew that they were right because I knew that when I ate bread, it seemed like, you know, it seemed like I would gain weight. And, and you know, there's not a lot of sugar in bread. There's a little so then I said, okay, well, I'll buy bread that doesn't have much sugar at all. And I found that I still, you know, there was something about bread and me that was making me gain weight. And then we started, you know, trying to figure it out. And then we had this really major insight. It was not our discovery. People had already discovered that the body can make fructose. There's only one way. You can only make fructose from glucose. There's a specific enzyme. And normally that enzyme is pretty quiet. When we're born, we do not really have that enzyme anywhere except in certain regions of our kidney. But otherwise, it's, it's really not around. And we call it the polyol pathway. But it was known, gosh, it was known when I was in medical school that in diabetes, the body can make fructose and that this polyol pathway is turned on. So it was known that once you become diabetic, you can make fructose even if you're not eating it. And there were studies showing that particularly when diabetes was out of control, that you, you could have high fructose levels in your blood and your urine. And we've confirmed that since. And, and then the question was, well, how does it work? And it turns out that the enzyme that makes fructose gets turned on and when you're starving, kind of makes sense. It gets turned on when, when you're dehydrated. That makes sense because fructose will make fat. Fat can be a source of water. 
and it can be turned on when glucose levels in the blood are high, like in diabetes. And, and that sort of made sense because in diabetes, it, because when the blood glucose goes up, it, it makes the blood concentrated. And what happens is it makes you thirsty. So it's sort of like another way to create dehydration. And so we said, aha, well, what about high glycemic carbs? So when you eat bread, the glucose gets released. We call it high glycemic carbs because certain foods, when you eat it, the glucose level will go up in the blood, you know, right after you eat it. So if, let's say you have a blood sugar of 80 and you eat some bread, the blood, your blood sugar might go up to 120, you know. It may just go up that fast with just eating a slice or two of bread. And, and that's because when the bread is broken down, it releases glucose very rapidly. And some of that gets into the blood and it makes the blood concentration go up. So it's like a transient or temporary diabetic state. You know, you're not diabetic when you eat it, you know, bread, but your glucose shoots up. And so you have transient temporary high glucose or hyperglycemia. And that turns out to be enough to activate the switch. And what we found was that high glycemic carbs get turned into fructose in the body. And if you block that, and we did that in a big, you know, you know, we did it in laboratory mice, but we did it beautifully and knocked it out. And when that happens, those animals are incredibly protected. They, they don't get fatty liver. They don't get insulin resistance. They still gain a little weight, but it's a healthy obesity. It's sort of driven by insulin, but it's not actually the mechanism that where you get fatty liver and insulin resistance is not from the effects of insulin itself. It's from the fructose. And so it turns out that high glycemic carbs are bad. They are really bad, but it isn't really just from stimulating insulin. It's because they get turned into fructose. And now there was just recently a study showing that when you, know, when you eat glucose, you're making fructose in the body. So it's been shown in humans now. So I, I'm pretty, feeling pretty confident that this is a major mechanism. So that's why low-carb diets are so great because you are restricting sugar, which is fructose, you know, which contains fructose. You're restricting high-fructose corn syrup. But you're also restricting high glycemic carbs. So you're restricting the main way that the body can make fructose because it uses glucose. And if you restrict foods that make a lot of glucose, you're gonna, it's going to work. And so that was like, wow, wow, that explains the low-carb diet. For listeners, you will have to get Nature Wants Us to Be Fat because he goes deep into all of the technicalities of all these studies that you've conducted, and they're just really, really fascinating. And so just for listeners so they can get the full resource. So big question, fructose, we, we keep saying fructose, sugar, high fructose corn syrup. Does this apply to whole fruits as well? Oh, great question. You know, so again, you know, I, we're studying this, right? And I'm going, oh my gosh, you know, if this is correct, then I shouldn't be eating an apple or a banana. And I love fruit, you know, and fruit's healthy. There are, there, are 20, there are 200 papers out there plus that show that natural, if you're eating natural fruits, you tend to do well. But there's an interesting thing. It was noted 
20 years ago by the pediatricians that fruit juice was not the same as natural fruits. And they actually did studies and they found that if children drank fruit juice, that that was associated with obesity. And the pediatric societies came out and said, hey, you've got to limit how much fruit juice you're, you're drinking, especially if you're giving it to children, because they can get obesity from it. It can stunt growth. It can do all kinds of things. But particularly the obesity and the diabetes were strongly associated with fruit juice. So what was the difference well, it turns out that when you eat a natural fruit, you're, you're, one fruit has like, you know, four to six grams of fructose typically. Some have a little bit more. But that's uh, much less than drinking a soft drink that has 30 grams of fructose. So we're talking a big difference in the amount. Okay, so that's one. The second thing is when you eat a natural fruit, there's fiber in it. And fiber slows the absorption of the fructose. And that's important because the way the fructose drops the energy in the cell is like a chemical reaction. It's not based on just the amount. It's based on the concentration. So if the fructose is, hits there and it's at a high concentration, the energy falls a lot and the switch is turned on a lot. But if the energy just falls, if you get only a little bit of fructose there, the energy just falls a little bit. And it's not going to create the same thing. It's going to be a much milder activation of the switch. So the switch is really like a dimmer. It's not like on and off. Okay. So when you drink a soft drink, you're drinking a ton of fructose, 30 grams, and you're drinking it in about five minutes or less. Some people just guzzle it. So you get this big wave of fructose that hits the liver and big activation of the switch. But when you eat a fruit, and especially like you're eating it in a, with a meal and there's all this fiber and everything slows the absorption, and you're only eating a small amount, you, you don't get the same dose, okay? You don't get the same concentration. And there's another thing, the intestinal lining can inactivate about four or five grams of fructose. So it turns out that the fructose in vegetables gets inactivated so you can eat vegetables, eat like sweet potatoes can have a little bit of fructose in it, but it's not going to make you fat because your intestines going to inactivate it. Now, if you coat it with brown sugar, and, and, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a way to, to beat everything. So you, you can make it worse. But, you know, and, and, and so just keep in mind, it's, it's like the dose and the dose is what happens in the wild. The bear, the bear doesn't eat, you know, 10 berries and then a, a nut, you know. Uh, it's eating thousands of berries and grapes at a time. The, the, uh, and I mean it. There's some studies that show that they, they can eat like 10,000 berries in 24 hours. So <laughs> they, <laughs> but anyway, so fruit. Uh, so we, we, we decided to do a study in people. You know, it's good enough to talk about this, but, you know, let's do it. So we, we gave overweight ladies a low, a low fructose diet, and that included low fruit, low everything, man. Anything that had fructose in it, they were, it was limited. And one group got that, but one group got the low fructose diet, but we added back natural fruits. So they were, really wasn't a low fructose diet. It was really a low added sugar diet, but they couldn't drink fruit juice and stuff like that. And it turned out that even though the people got natural fruits, 
they still improved their metabolic syndrome. They actually, and they tolerated it better. They felt better on the diet. So, you know, I think, I think that natural fruits are good. I think it's possible to overdo it. If you're eating like a huge amount of fruit, you know, in front of the TV, you know, you're probably going to activate the switch. Would a fourth factor in the fruit be how you talk about how we um, lost our ability to synthesize vitamin C actually as a mechanism to encourage weight gain? So would the vitamin C and the fruit also help mitigate the effects? Yeah, so there's this really interesting thing, you know, we, ha- we have to take vitamins, you know, these, when we take a vitamin, it's because we used to make that stuff, but we don't make it anymore. So vitamin C, you know, humans, our ancestors could make vitamin C, but we lost the ability to make that vitamin C. And so we have to, we have to get vitamin C or we can get a disease called scurvy. And, you know, one of the great discoveries was James Lynn, a surgeon who was on a ship and all these guys were eating, getting this terrible aching joints and bleeding joints and bleeding gums. And he, they, they had scurvy and he gave them some lemons and oranges and they, he could cure it. And it was later figured out it was the vitamin C. So, you know, people go, why would we have lost vitamins, the ability to make vitamin C? No one, there's no advantage to being vitamin C deficient. You know, in fact, you're going to get scurvy. So why would that happen? And so it's been a mystery why we would lose vitamin C. And one of the things about vitamin C is it's an antioxidant. And antioxidants are supposed to be good. So why would you lose an antioxidant? You know, that would make you live, you would think you might live shorter if you didn't have that, a shorter time. So it's been kind of a mystery. But when we were studying this, we realized that vitamin C, it turns out to be an antioxidant, and it's involved in the survival switch. Remember how I told you how mitochondria that are really healthy have a lot of antioxidant activity, and they, and they, can, block, they can block the oxidative stress induced by, by fructose. So when you... When you give fructose to an animal, you create this oxidative stress to the mitochondria, and it's driven by the uric acid. But the oxidative stress suppresses the mitochondria and and reduces the amount of ATP produced so that the energy that comes in gets converted to fat. So what happens is you, you, it's a way to, by suppress the oxidative stress, suppresses the ATP production so that the calories are converted to stored energy instead of to instant energy. So oxidative stress is actually a survival tool to prepare you for, you know, for winter. So, so, so it's, it's actually to help you store fat. So it turns out that the mutation for vitamin C occurred at the time of the dinosaur extinction. And this huge asteroid, Chicxulub, it was called, came sailing in from, you know, the, the heavens and smashed the earth and caused a major extinction. And all the dinosaurs basically died except for the uh, birds, which were sort of a dinosaur-like thing. And, and it creamed the animals and the primates got creamed. There were a lot of primates. Uh, there were at least there were some primates. We think genetically, 
But for some reason, some of those primates survived. And it turns out it was that most of those primates, the lemurs also survived and they did not get this mutation. But all the other primates, there was a common ancestor and they somehow this one, one guy lost his vitamin C through a mutation and it provided a survival advantage. And the survival advantage was, was that it led to a greater oxidative stress to those mitochondria from just even a small amount of fructose. And so there was, it allowed you to store fat more easily. The way we proved that was we took, we, we took mice and we, we worked with them and genetically got, we got genetically altered mice that were vitamin C deficient, just like we are. And you have to keep them on a low dose of vitamin C or they will get scurvy. Okay, so now we had them on a low dose of vitamin C just to keep them from getting scurvy. But now we give one group a high dose of vitamin C and the other group we give a low dose. And so we have two groups of mice. We have a mouse group that has a high vitamin C and we have a group that has a low vitamin C. And then we gave them sugar. Actually, we gave them high fructose corn syrup. And both groups love, you know, all animals love high fructose corn syrup. And we put it in their drinking water. They were happy. And they, they activated their switch and they started eating more. So they, they, it's, they don't just get the calories from the sugar water. They become hungry and they eat more chow. And they, they become, they eat more. They got fatty liver. They became pre-diabetic. The whole bit. But the group that had the low amount of vitamin C got a lot more fatter. They got almost you know, 40% more fat. And so we could show that the vitamin C mutation could help these animals survive when there wasn't much fruit, you know, so that when there, it it would help them survive if there wasn't much fructose around. But if we give them more fructose, then they actually become fatter than their controls because they're getting more damage to their mitochondria. So they can survive. So, so it turns out that fruit, when fruit is first immature, the seeds are immature, right? So that if the fruit falls, there's going to be no germination. The, the seeds aren't going to be able to, to make a new fruit tree. And it's high in vitamin C at that time. And so animals won't gain much fat by eating it. So they tend not to go after immature fruit. But as the fruit ripens, the sugar content goes up and the vitamin C content goes down. And so it's almost like the plant knows that, that the plant wants the fruit to be eaten when the seeds are mature so that it can promote a new tree. And, and by making the fruit ripe with low vitamin C, the fruit, the, the animals know that they're going to get more fat from eating it. So they or or they learn this evolutionarily. It isn't like they know this, but this kind of gets trapped, uh, you know, brought, brought into the evolution of how these animals work. So what's happened is vitamin C, when the fruit that we eat, we tend to like a fruit that's less mature. We like the tart fruits. We like the fruits that don't have as much sugar. We don't like the right mushy fruits that a lot of animals will go after. We want we want it when it's tart and high in vitamin C. So when we're eating natural fruits, we're, we're eating the fruit has fiber and potassium 
and vitamin C and all these things help counter it. So that is why natural fruits are good, even though they contain fructose, but things like fruit juices and sugar, why, why they're so effective at activating the switch. Hi friends, super exciting announcement. Berberine subscriptions are here and this is your chance to get grandfathered in to a massive discount for life. Berberine is an incredible supplement that I love and which is amazing, especially for this audience. It is a plant alkaloid that has been used for thousands of years in traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, and it rivals the effect of metformin when it comes to blood sugar control. That's right, if you're looking to take charge of your blood sugar levels, berberine can be an incredible tool in your arsenal to help achieve that. I have noticed huge differences on my CGM, my continuous glucose monitor, when I take berberine. I've personally seen a 20-point drop in my postprandial blood sugar levels when I take berberine, and it's not just me. Friends have told me that. You guys in the audience have told me that. Influencers have reported that back. It truly is incredible, and it's not just blood glucose control, berberine has so many other potential health benefits. It can help modulate inflammation, beneficially affect cholesterol levels, support the gut microbiome, and even activate the longevity pathway, AMPK. That's something that we talk a lot about with fasting specifically. Berberine can actually help do that as well. It took quite a while to bring it to market because we couldn't find a berberine source that tested for all of the purity and potency that we wanted. We finally did find a source. That's the one that you get in Avalon X. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens as well as heavy metals and mold, which you guys know is so important to me. So if you'd like to have berberine in your daily life and help save money as well as be more sustainable for you and the planet, you need a subscription. It helps reduce packaging and shipping energy. And ultimately, we want to create it all in one large bottle like we did recently with my serapeptase supplement. But here's the thing. We want to make sure that we give you guys the right amount of capsules perfect for you. So we are doing a special subscription launch where you guys can actually choose between two different options, two bottles every two months or two bottles every three months. You will get grandfathered into a 22% off discount for life as long as you keep the subscription active. So now is the time to grab the subscription. And then based on how that goes, whichever is more popular, the two bottles every two months or the two bottles every three months, that will help us decide which type of subscription to launch when we do the large bottle. So this is your chance to snag an incredible discount on Avalon X Berberine 500 and help us figure out what you guys really want in the future with the large bottle option. This is live now and ends July 17th, so snag this deal while you can. That's at avalonx.us. And to stay up to date on all of the latest specials and discounts, definitely get on my email list. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And you can get text updates and a 20% off code when you text avalonx to 877-861-8318. Of course, you can always use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON site-wide to get 10% off all of my products, as well as all of the products from my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. So again, grab that berberine subscription, let us know what you want, get grandfathered in to an incredible discount for life, and take charge of your blood sugar control. All right, now back to the show. Well, again, listeners, if you get Nature Wants Us to be Fat, it has an entire outline of a diet to follow. And because I, I bet listeners are probably thinking, oh, now, like, oh no, what do I eat now? So it's, it's a really, really helpful resource. I want to be really respectful of your time. Can I ask you one last super granular question that I apologize in advance to listeners because it's going to be so 
granular. <laughs> it's based off of what we were talking about recently with some email exchanges. Yes, please go ahead. I had asked Rick about fructose's effect on AMPK in the cells. And listeners might actually be familiar with AMPK because we do talk about it a lot on this show as a pathway that's activated from fasting and how it you know, creates a lot of benefits in the fastest state by signaling the need for energy and a lot of benefits from that. Okay, so here's my question. So in one of the studies that I was reading, and I sent you the quote from it last night, but it was saying that fructose actually activates both AMPK in the cell and AMPD2 specifically, which is like counteracts AMPK and has the opposite effect of AMPK. And I'm probably completely bastardizing this, but um, in layman's terms, that was my takeaway is that it actually stops fat burning and counteracts the beneficial effects of AMPK. Okay, here's my question. So one of the other studies you had sent me was talk, or no, I think it was the same study. It was talking about metformin and how metformin can actually block AMPDD2. So if you were to, and this is hypothetical, and I don't even know if this practically could happen, but if you took in fructose, and then you took in a compound like metformin, and if you could block AMPDD, I can't say it, AMPD2, would that actually be all beneficial then? Because then you'd be stimulating AMPK from the fructose, but you wouldn't be getting the AMPDG2. So you'd be just getting the benefits. Well, this it's a pretty heavy question, but let me just kind of just say a few things and I'll try to get to that answer. And I think you're, pr- you're onto something, but let me just begin by saying, you know, that AMPK is, you know, is this wonderful pathway that when you activate it, it, it burns fat and it keeps glucose levels down. And it gets inhibited in diabetes. And it's inhibited, and our group showed that it's inhibited by AMPD and by uric acid. And AMPD is the enzyme that makes uric acid in the fructose pathway. So it turns out that fructose activates AMPD, and AMPD makes uric acid, and they counter the effects of AMPK. Okay, so there, there's this kind of yin yang where AMPK is considered the good guy and AMPD is what drives fat. And so, you know, we actually would love to make an AMPD, AMPD inhibitor and metformin is a weak one. So metformin stimulates AMPK and it weakly inhibits AMPD. And this is probably one reason why metformin has been found to be so beneficial but if it could really knock down AMPD, it would be uh, like a big time. It, it could be a huge winner. When we knock down AMPD, we can even cure genetically induced obesity. I mean, it's just amazing. We can block addiction for sugar. And, you know, it's just a very powerful pathway. In theory, there could be a drug that could do that. If that happened and then you took in fructose, would you get benefits then because you stimulate AMPK? Still, you probably would. You would because uh, one thing that can stimulate AMPK is a drop in energy in the cell. So uh, fructose drops the energy in the cell, but then the AMPD pathway and the uric acid generated inhibits the AMPK. So there's a when you get fructose, you can show that AMPK goes up to some extent. It's actually induced, but then it's inhibited by the uric acid and the AMPD. So the net effect is that the AMPK is, is, is kept low. Now, in a true starvation state, the AMPK 
can override the AMPD. So if you're in a true starvation state where there's no fat around and things like that, you can really, you know, you are very minimal. AMPK will be activated. But but anyway, you're right. The, these two players, AMPD and AMPK, the balance of that is so important in intermittent fasting and in low-carb diets, in anything. AMPK should be viewed as pretty much a good guy. And AMPD is its, is its evil counterpart. <laughs> unless, unless you're preparing for starvation, then you want that AMPD, man. Well, thank you for entertaining that. I just had, I was reading all the studies and I was like, I have to ask and apologies to listeners for the random rabbit hole. Well, this has been so amazing. We only barely touched on just like a tiny bit of everything that's in your book. So listeners go get nature wants us to be fat. It's amazing. You will learn so many things. And Rick, I can't thank you enough for your work. I'm so excited to see what the future holds with all of your studies. And are you writing another book right now? I'm thinking of writing another book. I haven't started yet, but I'm, I'm very interested in writing a book about discovery processes just because I've been involved in quite a few. And, you know, kind of like what's the, the art of discovery? Because it's sort of interesting how, how people, how, how there's different approaches to discovering things. Does it often start with asking why, like you were saying in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, well, one thing that's for sure involved with almost every discovery process is just you've got to be passionate and curious and you know for sure those two are characteristics that that are constantly seen but there's there's a lot of you know serendipity and and all kinds of things that are involved and there's there's certain tricks that i think uh, can help people that i might be able to write about that not necessarily that i've done but that other people that I've seen others do too, you know, because I've been doing, I've been doing research, just, you know, since the, since the mid eighties. And so I've been around and I've been around some wonderful people. I've seen, uh, you know, Nobel laureates, uh, I've talked to them and, and I've, 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 over the years, I've, I've just been very curious, you know, what is it? Why did that guy discover that? I'm sort of kind of interested in, you know, what, what was the thinking that led to that? Not so much what, you know, what the science of the discovery is, but kind of like, you know, how did he figure that out? And what was, what was the technique? And so, so I'm, I'm interested in that part. I love that. I really hope you write that because that I would just, I would just eat that up. I would love to bring you on in the future if you do and talk all about that. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. Again, listeners, there will be a full transcript in the show notes because I know we went deep into everything, but this has been so amazing and hopefully we can talk again in the future. Thank you, Melanie. That was just a wonderful, you, you, your knowledge is so strong. It's just really wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you. You're amazing. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.